looking at this this picture that I've I've used for the uh, for the image for this video. And I have this feeling that if ever I turn out to be a serial killer, <laughs> I get caught. <laughs> That's the photo they're going to use because it looks kind of crazy eyes. It's winter, <laughs> winter on the Gold Coast, uh, and I've just been out for a walk. And winter on the Gold Coast means it gets down to 10 Celsius today, <laughs> which felt absolutely freezing. So uh, I'm there in this this picture with, like, long sleeve T-shirt under big jumper, under jacket, come home, feeling freezing, which is why I now have a warm drink, uh, which is not cold. I've had enough coffee today. I really have. Things make me anxious. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's winter, <laughs> 10 Celsius. I just pushed out a photo of uh, of the scene down there on the beach, and it's just it just looks epic. Now, for those wondering, in fact, what's it going to get up to today? Normally it gets up to, normally the coldest days in winter are like high teens, all in Celsius, of course, the the modern temperature today's heading for 21 this is our week 21 23 22 21 20 Ooh, 21 <laughs> that's very very usual harsh life good everyone joining george is evening stefan morning you, you are adjusting for me thank you stefan uh daniel's asking about the kitchen i'm going to get onto that and all the other stuff oh my god it's killing me um, Stephen, 10C, that's like a warm summer night here. Yeah, I, I know, I know. That's funny, isn't it? All right, so uh, let me let me jump into the the mechanical bits first. Sponsor, uh, I feel like I could I could almost do this by heart. Sponsor is Collide. <laughs> Collide can get your cross-platform fleet 100% compliance to zero trust for Okta. Want to see for yourself? Book a demo. As I've said many times, every I think just about every week this year, Clyde has been a massive sponsor, and I really appreciate their support. They do ensure that uh, if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps, which is probably a good idea. There are a lot of unsecured devices, a lot of unsecured apps still out there. Achieving zero trust, working on Mac, Windows, Linux, iOS, and Android, please go and check out Clyde. Uh, and, and as I've said many times, it, it does make a massive difference having sponsors and being able to devote more of my time to... I was going to say, like, do useful stuff, uh, which is part of it. <laughs> but then I looked around at my desk and I saw how many bits of IoT are, like, laying around. I've got a handful of Shellys here. I don't know if they work. There's another Shelly there uh, and a CR2032 battery because I was pretty sure something else had died. This is rain sensor been sitting here half finished for, I want to say, about six weeks. That's <laughs> just, it's just too much stuff. Speaking of stuff. Let me answer Daniel's question. How's that kitchen coming? So I did put this on my on my dis to discuss list, uh, the renovation updates. I don't even start with this. I'll, I'll give you a tangential answer. So answer, jeez, more tea. Uh, we've probably all been involved in IT projects before. And, you know, we... We used to cost overrun. We used to scope creep. But in an IT project, you generally document things. You generally approve and sign off on things. You usually communicate in writing. If there's ever a deviation or a defect or anything like that, there's a fairly clear paper trail of what happened. Not so much with builders. 
Not so much with builders at all. So, currently going going through a cycle, and I don't want to share too much here because we'll see how they deal with it. But going through a cycle of trying to rectify some things that just weren't done right, and it is it is not fun at all. Anyhow, put that aside. Uh, moving on to uh, the the answer about the kitchen. So the, the kitchen was one of the first big things actually that sort of kicked off this present cycle of of work, and. It, it, it's funny how I, I guess everything sort of goes in in spurts of of activity. So very early on in Jan, I do have a big tweet thread with all the sort of the questions and the decision making, photos and things. I'm going to turn this into a blog series at some time as well. But uh, it all started back in January, trying to figure out how to how to I guess modernise a 17 year old kitchen. Um, so. That was everything from increasing storage space. It's not a large kitchen for the house that it's in. Uh, get some modern appliances, make it more practical, make it more usable. I really enjoy cooking. The kids enjoy cooking, which is which is great. And it's a, a very communal area uh, where the table's there and it's right next to the outdoors. You can see the pool and it's a place that people sort of gather and spend time. So we just want to make it awesome. So everything got ripped out. Actually, this has happened quite quickly. This is the, the growth spurt bit. <laughs> so on Sunday, uh, all the appliances we donated to the electricians, who, who are uh, well and truly our favourite tradies, <laughs> because I keep getting them back to fit Shelleys and things. In Australia, you have to have an electrician to do anything more electrical than changing a light bulb. And, and seriously, that, that's what it is. You cannot fit a Shelley yourself. You're not even meant to wire like Ethernet and RJ45 plugs, even though they're like extraordinarily low voltage. So everything has to have tradies uh, and licensed electricians. So they're, they're good folks. So we gave them, uh, keep in mind all these like 17-year-old appliances, we gave them dishwasher, uh, steam oven, conventional oven, microwave oven, cooktop. So they came and took all that Sunday. Uh, Monday, demo crew came and took all the rest of the kitchen, so everything that was along one wall and there's an island bench, they took it all. It did go to a skip bin. I get people going, oh, yeah, no, you could. And then the new kitchen, which had been built, <laughs> God, speaking of problems, the new kitchen that had been built has, has been delivered and is gradually being fitted. And again, in the tweet through, you can see there's just like, I, I guess, a deconstructed kitchen just sitting all over the place. And you're sort of looking at it going, I wonder where that'll go. Well, it, is, it feels like a big... Lego set, right? All the bits have just got to be joined together. So it's actually been quite quick. It's just been one guy putting the kitchen together here after everything got fabricated off-site. So he's literally just sort of stacking it all up and lining it all up and, and doing all the stuff. Um, <laughs> we, Charlotte's a great designer. She has made this house beautiful. And as part of this process, she's decided, you know, on things like the colour of the, the, the kitchen. And we end up going a dark colour, but decision processes there in the tweet thread as well. And she got samples and we eventually decided on a very particular sample, this sort of wood and this sort of color. Uh, and we kept the sample and then we went to look at the kitchen the other day and it was a completely different color. Um, I wasn't real happy. <laughs> let's just let's just leave it there. Apparently, it's all going to be fixed by Tuesday or something. But we keep going through this this cycle. The hope today, actually, is that we get uh, some uh, we we get sort of most of the drawers and things done, so we can start putting stuff back in there, which is great. Because at the moment, like I go to try and find a cup of tea today, I'm saying to Charlotte, "Where's the tea?" Well, it's in the guest bathroom at the bottom of a box, underneath all the other. I just want a cup of tea. <laughs> That's all I wanted. 
So hopefully we'll start getting all the stuff back in the drawers. I think the appliances will get installed. It, it sounds like we might get dishwasher or something, the Savo, but then we need the Sparky back to do all the all the things like the um, uh, the wiring of the other kitchen appliances. I think that'll be a Monday job. Seems like next week, by I think midweek, it'll, it'll pretty much be done with the major caveat being that in the kitchen and also a bit in the garage, there is some stone that needs to be cut. So, you know, they're like stone bench tops. And it, it, it feels like with renovations, everyone wants to be the last in. So everyone's like, do all the other stuff and then we'll come in last, you know, like the painters or you know, whoever else it is. So the stonemason wants to come in last. So he wants like everything done and then he'll come in and he'll measure everything precisely. And okay, I guess that makes sense. And then it will be like, I almost laugh because everything's like six to eight weeks, just like an IT project. So then it will be six to eight weeks to cut the stone and then come and fit it. So we'll be pretty much done, but with temporary bench tops. Uh, and then sometime, I, th- I think it'll probably be in August, we'll actually have the stone in place and then we'll be able to go, yeah, it, it's done. So <laughs> there is more pain to come. The uh, The garage is pretty much done. Just lots. There's lots of little things like some of the joinery's got to be changed. There's touch-up paint stuff that's got to happen. There's a bit of stone that's meant to go on there. Stone mason wants to come in last. So it's it's getting there. Uh, other little bits and pieces there. There's a there's an outdoor barbecue that's arrived. Um, there's joinery that's got to be installed there. I just I feel like once it's done and I can sit back and actually write this blog post series I want to about the things we did. I'll be able to relax. But right now I'm living in a freaking construction zone. And there's constantly people walking in <laughs> through that door going, hey, what about the thing? Or well, the widget just arrived. Well, I, I've, I've, not been, I've not been anywhere near as productive as I'd like to be lately. But I'm going to talk about the new domain search stuff today, which I did push out and I'm very, very happy with. Uh, Wayne's here. G'day, Wayne. Richard's here. Hey, Richard. Thank you for joining. Um, George, anyone else just get a breach? Email from System76. Never heard of it. Drop the details in there, George. We'll uh, see what we can find. Ben's here. Been here for almost three years. <laughs> Finally got the Sparky to put the dryer washing machine on the other circuit as the appliances were on the same, the Sparky being my father. All right, well, you have access, and you've probably got more knowledge than me as well. Part of what's taken the, our Sparky's a bit of time is that uh, we, we've now created a, basically like a sub-board for all the kitchen circuits. So everything was in the garage on one circuit board, and we'd have a bunch of things that would trip other things. And then to turn off a circuit in the kitchen, it turned off somewhere else. So now we've got like a subboard out the side of the house, which will just be circuits for the kitchen. I want to try and get some Shelleys in some other places as well to monitor things like uh, the, the amount of power used by air conditioning. I think that'd be really interesting. Joel says we had a cardboard bench top for six weeks waiting for the real one. It all, like it, it, I know that we're going to get out there and it's going to be epic. It looks, we're seeing <laughs> glimpses of how epic it is, but it's just, it it's constant. And when you work from home and you work for yourself and your work starts when you get up and it stops when you go to bed and then you fit other stuff in between, just layering that on top has, has honestly done my head in. Speaking of things doing my head in, <laughs> Azure API management. Now, I spoke about this last week. Uh, and as, as a really quick little refresher, I'll see how my stats look now. Really quick little refresher, Azure API Management or APIM 
sits as a wrapper around an API and it does key management and it does quota management. And in the case of the Have I Been Pwned API, it does the rate limiting. It can do a bunch of other stuff around transforming requests and responses. Uh, it's, it's actually enormously cool because you can just build your API, get your API doing its own thing. And then the other layers you can put on top of that. And then Cloudflare sits around all of that as well. And I was discussing last week how I'd had some folks using the Have I Been Pwned API, the public API with the public API key, saying that it was getting slow. And I'd been looking at the underlying Azure functions and I'm like, no, it's, it's not slow. It's, it's fast. It's like everything's executing in you know, 20 milliseconds or something, I think it was. You know, that's fast, <laughs> particularly when you're searching through 12 and a half billion records. And they're like, no, 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 it's slow. And, and I managed to track it back down to latency that had been introduced at the APIM level. And what I found is that whereas the start of May, we were constantly seeing about 200 millisecond uh, uh, total duration of function execution and the APIM layer, what's the right word for it? What do they use? Overall duration of gateway requests. Overall duration of gateway requests was constantly about 200 milliseconds. And then for some reason, it started going up to like a second, 1.3 seconds, like massive, massive, massive increase. And I went into APIM and, uh, and I saw that the, the capacity usage was quite high, but the request for the, it was just very, very bizarre. I couldn't nail it down. So last week I, I talked about uh, a whole bunch of changes that I was doing at the Cloudflare level to try and reduce the load on APIM. So you know, a good example of this, I think I mentioned there are a, a whole bunch of uh, 403s or 401s. Uh, unauthorized, 403, 401 forbidden. A whole bunch of 403s which were going through to APIM because people had invalid keys. I mean, it was like lots of tens of thousands a day. And I kind of went, well, as soon as APIM comes back once and says the key is invalid, I could just block it at Cloudflare. So I created a whole bunch of Cloudflare firewall rules for this. Actually, how are they going? <laughs> I should have a look. Now, Cloudflare, I've spoken about so many times, it is... So cool just to be able to like sit here in the browser. I'm going to jump, drop into my security section in here and look at my, my WAF. And in my WAF, I have rate limiting rules. And one of these rules is, uh, oh, it was 401, my mistake, blocking 401s. Now, <laughs> in the last 24 hours, Cloudflare has blocked 497,000 requests due to invalid API keys. So it's 400, let's call it half a million, half a million requests that would have gone through to APIM and APIM would have had to process in the limited capacity that it has, they don't go there anymore. You reckon that number's big, 429s. I was finding that people would make a request to the API. Every request is rate limited, depending on how much you pay, you get a different rate limit. So let's say you got a 10 RPM key, $3.50 a month bargain. So you've got this 10 RPM key, but instead of making one request every six seconds, you make a request, let's say, after three seconds from the last one. Well, you're going to get a 429 back and it's going to say retry after another three seconds. But people just keep hammering it and hammering it and hammering it until eventually a request goes through. And that's just just not cricket, as they'd say. <laughs> you know, This is not cool. This is not the way we want the service being used because... APIM still needs to handle and process all of those 429s in its finite capacity. So <clears throat> my rule here at the moment, 
and now that no one's complained too much, I actually think I can even make it a little bit more aggressive, is it says, look, if there's an incoming request, request to the Authenticate APIs and it comes back with a 429 and there are 20 of them in a one minute period, so 20 times within one minute, you've got a 429. When the API key is the same, so it looks for a header value of HIBP API key, then block with a custom response, which says you sent too many requests that exceed the rate limit, try again soon, for one minute. So summarizing, if someone gets more than 20 429s in a minute, they're going to get blocked for a minute. Now, I would argue that <coughs> maybe I could do less than 20. Maybe I could block for more than a minute. You know, I don't want to kill legitimate usage either. And actually, what I'm about to say demonstrates that I've got plenty of capacity anyway, so I probably don't need to change it. But the point is, it's really cool to push all of that upstream because not only do I unburden the origin services, but it does get responses back to the consumer faster because they're hitting an edge node somewhere close to them. Now, before I tell you <coughs> how APIM's looking now, because this is really the follow-up from last week, let me just see the comments there. Um, <coughs> Wayne says, it's the showroom, aka garage complete. I was just talking about that, Wayne. It's 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 mostly there. It just it's, it's like touch-up stuff. I might try and get some more photos later on. Uh, Joe, in for the UK, just want to reiterate from Twitter, the continued work and updates to HWP are awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. It really does make a massive difference to hear from people that you're doing something useful. <laughs> like, I know it's useful, but little things like that make a big difference. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that, mate. Um, Daniel says, uh, regarding APM, sounds a lot like unintentional DOS. <sighs> it will, but, but it wasn't. So get, getting back to the original point that I was speaking about last week, <clears throat> I actually couldn't correlate traffic to the latency that was being introduced. And I ended up scaling out an instance. <clears throat> <clears throat> So I was then running two instances of APIM. Now, as soon as I did that, the capacity percentage that was being used massively dropped. The duration of execution went from the you know, one point something milliseconds, uh, seconds rather, back to like 200 milliseconds, way more commensurately so than just doubling the capacity should have done. So I did end up speaking with folks on the, on the APIM team at Microsoft. Uh, there were investigations done Things stabilized. I dropped one instance of my APIM the other day. Now, <laughs> magically, so keep in mind, <clears throat> people were complaining at 1.3 seconds. It was about 200 milliseconds. My average overall duration gateway request for the last 24 hours is now 38.93 milliseconds. So somehow we've shaved off like 60%. What's that? Uh... 70% of the processing time from before. And not only that, but the average capacity, which was often spiking up to 70, 80%, the average capacity is 3.35% for the last 24 hours. So I don't know what they did, but it is now better than ever. It's awesome. It's so, and it's so constant too. Like I'm seeing a deviation of 40, barely from 40 milliseconds. Some of the requests looks like they, uh, they executed in just over 30. Some of them just less than 50. Good job. I'm happy with that. I'm really, really happy with that. Uh, one of the things I learned from this as well <clears throat> is that I need to pay better attention to my graphs. 
and I do have a, an Azure dashboard set up. Uh, it is on that monitor over there on one of the 200 tabs I have open at the moment. I haven't been paying enough attention to it. I spoke the other day when Stefan was on here. I said, look, I need to do like a Grafana dashboard or something. And Stefan's like, you know, I do these things, right? So anyway, uh, Stefan has been helping me do a Grafana dashboard. Oh, look, Stefan's talking about this now. <laughs> Stefan's here. We need to get the Cloudflare stats into the SOC dashboard as well. It'd be awesome to have them side by side with App Insight stats. So Stefan's made a really cool start on this. Uh, and I do have a 77-inch TV downstairs, which is now surplus to needs because we put a projector <laughs> in where the other one was. So the thinking at the moment is that probably somewhere up there on the wall will end up with this TV, which will be the SOC, which will be the Grafana dashboard that Stefan's working on now. So I want to put a bunch of, uh, obviously a bunch of Azure stats in there. Stefan's point just now about uh, Cloudflare stats would be cool too. So I really want to see some key metrics from them. Um, you know, I want to see the spikes. I want to see the anomalous behavior because that's the things that usually require some attention. And I want to see the overall stats as well. Like what's Pwn Passwords up to now? How many requests a month? You'd be interested in this, Stefan. We've been looking at this this rolling 30-day request window. So um, Cloudflare reports on a, a rolling 30 days rather than a month, given that you don't have constant length of months. And it was always like, when are we going to hit a billion? And then two billion. And then we passed five billion the other day, which was crazy. If we now have a look at the last 30 days for... Oh, that's password purgatory. <laughs> that's why it's so low. <laughs> 44, actually, I'm kind of impressed. Impressed. 46,000 requests to password purgatory. Yeah. Pwned passwords is going to be much more interesting. Uh, let's see. Our, our rolling 30 days on pwned passwords, 5.1 billion. And we're regularly exceeding 200 million now. It was only last month we had like the first 200 million day, but we exceeded 200 million. When's this? On the 30th of May. Uh, we almost did it the day after. We did do it the day after that. And then we did it again on the 7th of June, 207 million that day. Again on the 12th of June, again on the 13th of June. That's nuts. That's so cool. Anyway, I'd like to get those stats up somewhere. So we'll, we'll add all of that into this nice dashboard. I want to put some stuff up there around Stripe as well, because obviously Stripe's being used for the API keys. There's some stuff I don't want to put on a dashboard that faces everyone, but we'll try and find the right stuff. And then uh, I put a tweet out the other day. So look, what am I going to drive this off? You know, do I plug a Raspberry Pi into it or a NUC or something like that? And then how can I easily toggle dashboards? And I'm sure Stefan knows this, but someone actually said, look, you, you can configure Grafana to slide through different dashboards on a schedule. I kind of need to have, and maybe it'll be like a stream deck or something where I just go, you know, click. Uh, the, the publicly visible dashboard is now up and the rest of the time I have my other stats and things. Uh, okay, what was in here? Stefan, it's like surplus uh, 77-inch TV. Um, as in, the, yeah, that's that's a surprising thing. Uh, yeah, uh, well, <clears throat> it was a TV. I would have bought that. I want to say like six years ago or something. Uh, and because we're not doing enough stuff already to the house, Charlotte in particular decided it would be really cool to get the biggest possible screen, projector screen, we could on the wall and get a projector mounted behind us. So we have that now and it's, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I don't think I've posted any photos there. 
Okay. So that was that. Azure API Management, SOC, Dashboard, Grafana. Talk about data reaches. Talk about Zacks. Now, I alluded to this last week. <clears throat> Let me just, uh, I'll just read the description. What I, what I put here on the, uh, on the Twitters. Have I been pwned? Zacks had almost 9 million customer records breached in 2020 <clears throat> and posted to a hacking forum this week. Data included name, username, email, physical address, phone, and unsalted SHA-256 password hashes. Good on you, Zacks. 70% of those email addresses were already in Have I Been Pwned. Now, as I'm processing data reaches, I, I am sharing a lot more detail with Twitter subscribers. Uh, this is not just a sales pitch. <laughs> Raking in those $5 a month. But it, it is a much smaller audience that I feel able to share a bit more detail with. And I, I did share a little bit more about the Zach's process there, but it was one of those ones where I had trouble finding any information about security contact. And it, it just felt like it was going to be the same thing as always, where it's like, I'm going to go through this website. I'm going to find a generic contact. I'm going to send an email. I'll get an automated reply, and then nothing will happen. Uh, so after about 24 hours of exactly that happening, I did ask for a contact publicly, after which I did get a reply. Now, I'm not sure if I got a reply because of asking publicly or if it was just coincidental. But as well as sending an email to the organization, I did find, and I'm, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus here, but I, I did find someone senior in a technology capacity on LinkedIn, and I sent them a LinkedIn message. The contact I got back the following day was from their lawyer. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> now, it wasn't bad. <laughs> I just want to say that. But I don't feel that the right way of someone in a senior technology position responding to me when I report a data breach is to respond via a lawyer. The optics, as they say, of that are not great. And what that meant is I then had to try and explain to someone who doesn't live in our world why the website with the funny name, have been pwned, has millions of customer records of theirs. And I had to go through that process of, of trying to say, don't you know who I am without sounding like an obnoxious prick, <laughs> right? But um, it, was, uh, it, it was kind of funny because, you know, the, 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 the lawyer quite rightly said, look, this might be something that we need to uh, disclose to law enforcement, et cetera. Uh, you know, why do people send you data? I said, well, okay, that's a good explanation. Uh, people like the FBI send me data because of these reasons. You know, here are links to stories and articles and things. So I had to take them through the journey of this is what a data breach is. This is what happens after a data breach. And this took days and days and days. And the whole time I'm sort of saying, look, of my you know, 4.6 million odd subscribers here, I have lots of people that I need to notify. And I think the number of my subscribers that was in there ended up being, it was many tens of thousands. I can't remember if it was 50, 60,000, something like that. I'm going to need to send a lot of notifications. Is there anything that you'd like me to say <laughs> in the notification? Now, to their credit, they did eventually send me a, a statement, which apparently has gone to customers. If you're a Zach's customer and you got one, I'd love to actually see what they, they sent out. It was consistent with many data breach disclosure statements, let's just say that. 
we got there in the end, right? Got the data loaded, uh, got people notified. Just before that happened, it did pop up on a hacking forum as well. Uh, I, I I always refer to them as a popular hacking forum until they get taken down, and then I can say in the past it was you know raid forums and then breach forums. Now it is another popular hacking forum, which I'm sure I'll be naming before too long because it will it'll be on the front page of Krebs on Security, and someone will be arrested. Like it's it just it happens all the time. So that was Zach's. The thing about Unsalted SHA-256 is it made it really easy to go to Google and search for Create SHA-256 Hash and put in a password of Zax with a capital Z, take the hash and then see how many actually existed in the in the corpus of data. Uh, there are lots. <laughs> so maybe a, a password policy problem there, but a very, really good independent verification. As part of the verification process as well, I was sort of trying to explain to to this this uh, this lawyer um, who, who like we need them in this world. <laughs> she was nice. I can't complain with the with that. And I did incidentally. I made multiple offers. I said, "Look, if you'd like to talk, I'm happy to jump on a call, discuss it. You can say we're yeah. I'm an IK person. I don't have my hoodie on. Yeah, that's fine. But um, I was the I was sort of explaining, I think the question came back something to the effect of, you know, how do you know that this is actually from Zach's? How do you know it's legitimate? So I was explaining, you know, look, there are mail and addresses in there. You've got a enumeration vector on your password reset. It will confirm whether the address exists or not. And also these public mailboxes then get reset emails. Um, yeah, yes, it's very, very, very likely legitimate. It seems that a little bit more convincing was necessary. So I went and contacted a bunch of Have I Been Pwned subscribers that were in there. I was like, hey, you've been in this breach. Now, what was interesting about that is that for the most part, people were like, because normally I say you've been implicated as having been in this data breach. Uh, if you would like, I will send you your your data. And of course, anyone who replies is like, yeah, of course, I want to see the data. So most of the replies were like, yep. I signed up to Zax, uh, and yes, that is my personal information, you know, address, phone number, whatever. It was interesting because one person was like, nope, never heard of them. And and then that gets me going, well, maybe it's not legit. So I said, okay, can you just go to the password reset page, put your email address in, and see if you get an email. So, yep, <laughs> they got an email straight away. So I said, maybe you didn't think that you used this service. Maybe your data was aggregated from somewhere else. Who knows? But your data is on this website. So I'm kind of uh, kind of curious how many people would have reached out to Zach's afterwards and um, and said, why do you have my datas? Could you please remove them? Wayne says, you use the same phase, the website with the funny name, phase, phrase, I think you mean, in your post. Do you wish you could have called it something different? Now, that's a good question. I get this a lot where people will say something to the effect of, now that Have I Been Pwned has become like a serious service that's actually really important, really useful, you know, should you give it a better name or should you have called it something else? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I like it. And the reason I like it is because it creates this conversation. When I registered haveibeenpwned.com almost 10 years ago now, 4th of December will be the birthday, so I must have set it up in November or something because my build time was very, very short. Do you know how hard it is to get a domain name? I mean, even back then, like today, it's just about impossible to get any like sensible name.com. It was very, very hard. And I, I, I forget exactly how I came 
to the conclusion that was the right name, but obviously the domain name was available, so I went and got it. It has created so much conversation around that name because so many times it's it's like a, a light-hearted introduction where a journalist or something will call up and they'll go, hey, how do I actually pronounce this? You know, or, or very often if I do radio pieces, there'll be a producer who calls up, we have a discussion, so okay, so just so we can tell the host, how do you pronounce it? It's like, well, it's like owned but with a P because the keys are next to each other. And then you have a little light-hearted discussion. You know, this one time on American TV, someone called it, have I been prawned? So now I have have I been prawned dot <laughs> com. Anyway, it makes fun discussions. So uh, so no, Wayne, it's it's a good question. Comes up a lot, but I don't regret it at all. Now speaking about the website with the funny name, let's talk about that last blog post and the domain search thing. So I made five announcements on this, and I, I want to sort of go through and explain that uh, that logic a little bit more. The domain search piece is way more useful than what I think I realize <laughs> it is. And what I mean by that is I keep getting surprised by people popping up and the nature of the organization. Now, I'm not going to name them for privacy reasons, but if you can think of it, it's probably on there. Yeah, you know, I sort of said this in the introduction, uh, more than half the Fortune 500 uh, users have I been pwned for domain searches. Can you imagine any, like, proper business being able to go, we have more than half the Fortune 500 using us. Like that's, that is insane. It's nuts. And of course I can see who's using it because they enroll the domains uh, for, for ongoing monitoring. They, they do searches where we, we need to do things like go out and check whether a DNS record or something has been made. So in many cases, the usage of have I been pwned even ends up on the public record because there's a DNS entry or a text file uploaded to the website uh, or a meta tag on it. Um, so you can, sort of see many of these names for yourselves. And it's 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 crazy. It is crazy just how far that's that's gone. Now of course it's really useful information for the for the folks out there who are responsible for I guess trying to keep organizations safe or respond to to data breaches that impact their staff. This is really, really useful information. I remember after Ashley Madison, August 2015. <laughs> So many organizations were running these domain searches and finding a bunch of their staff in the Ashley Madison data breach. Now, how do you respond to that? And that's where it got really interesting because some organizations said, look, we need to know this because particularly if we've got like executives in the organization, this could really put them at risk that their data is in there. Uh, and that was sort of a very pragmatic view. You know, I think the discussion with this one organization was if you're, if you're just a normal everyday worker bee kind of person, doesn't really matter. If you're someone influential representing the company, it, it does matter. Uh, and, and we're going to, you know, case by case, have some discussions with people. I remember another organization saying, we, we just like hands over the ears, shaking their heads like, we just don't want to know, don't want to know. It's, it's like too hard. We just can't deal with it. Uh, yeah, we, we would like to not see results for Ashley Madison. So, okay, well, don't search for it. Another organization altogether said, well, it's an edgy site, but at the end of the day, it's a relationship site. And that is within our scope of acceptable use. Now, you can imagine, given the, the global nature of this service, 
the differences in culture in different parts of the world. Geez, even in the US, just the differences in culture in different states. <laughs> There's going to be fundamentally different approaches to it. The point is it was really useful data. Remember another organization said, look, we, I shouldn't laugh at this. They said, we, we keep finding the same two guys in the warehouse have accounts on all these porn sites. Uh, we have now discovered that there is a porn problem in the warehouse and we have had to take their computers away. <laughs> I feel like he should have been able to establish there was a porn problem by means other than just these two guys continually appearing in data breaches. Anyway, it's not just all adult stuff. I mean, things like organizations knowing who was in the Dropbox data breach. That's important because have you got an organizational account using Dropbox? Is that an approved cloud platform? Or are you dropping corporate docs into the Dropbox and possibly exfilling them somewhere else? Uh, credential reuse. Massive. A lot of organizations want to know when someone's in a data breach so that they can go out to them and go, look, uh, Joe in the warehouse, <laughs> you've been in a data breach. You're not using that same password to log on to corporate resources, are you? And increasingly, of course, corporate resources are not just behind the firewall. They might be publicly facing corporate resources. So are they at risk of credential stuffing attacks? All sorts of really, really, really useful use cases. And you know, the, the stats I shared here sort of give you a bit of an illustration of just how broad this usage is. There are 201,000 people currently actively monitoring domains. Now, that's probably less than that in terms of organizations because most people like me monitoring troyhunt.com, for example. But obviously, a bunch of these people are in capacities in organizations monitoring corporate domains. That's That's cool. There are 231,000 domains that have been searched successfully, which means verification has happened. They've uploaded the text file or got the email or whatever it may be. I've sent 2.7 million emails to people monitoring domains. And then the, the, the number which I think is, is the most massive one, but it's also much smaller than what I thought it might be, but I know the reason why now. The largest number of the lot, all those domains being monitored, encompass an eye-watering 273 million breached email addresses. And I saw that and I went, but there's 12.5 billion records and have been pwned. Why isn't this higher? It's a really good reason for that. There is a massive number of email addresses around the gmail.com domain. Uh, Outlook.com, Hotmail.com, these domains. These are domains that are so large, I, I literally do not have a mechanism to, to search it. We certainly can't do it via the mechanism that's used to search everything else that has at most like usually single-digit millions of email addresses on them. Uh, I do not have any backdoor <laughs> mechanism or anything like that to do it. I, I don't know how I'll do it. I, I think I would like literally need to... AZ copy a, a dump out on a regular basis. I, I don't even know. Anyway, the 273 million is the addresses across like all of the breach domains uh, that, that are your normal everyday, you know, acmecore.com sort of stuff. Because there's a bunch of comments in here. Let me see what's going on here. Then I'll come back to the domain bits. Uh, George says, if only I could share the QR porn story. I don't know if QR is Queensland Rail. You can send me that privately. <laughs> I'll keep it quiet. That sounds kind of interesting. Uh, Joel says, Troy dropping out for anyone else. Uh, nope, it's just you. <laughs> Time to turn the router on and off again. Mm. So 
domain searches are really, really useful. And as I sort of explain here, it, it was really January where I started to give a lot more thought to how it works. And, and one of the things that I kept seeing in January was after a data breach gets loaded, particularly a large one where lots of notifications get sent out, because the domain searches were running on the, the Azure app service, which is a logical machine that is this big, right? And if you use a certain percentage of the, the, the capacity, either based on CPU or memory, or in my case, I think I've got a trigger for both, you get another instance. But you have to sort of exhaust the resources and then you get another instance. And this seemed really cool 10 years ago. Not so much in more recent times when we have serverless computing via the likes of Azure Functions, where you just you execute the code and then you pay for how long the execution takes and how many resources it uses whilst it executes. But the domain search had always run on that. It had been stable on that. It's like, eh, I don't want to touch it. But I'd load a big domain and suddenly everything would start scaling out. Uh, and that comes at both a performance and a financial cost. So every time you add another instance, you're usually doing it because things have slowed down and then you have to wait for that other instance to come on and then they come off very slowly. And every time there's a new instance, we're paying for that, paying for egress bandwidth, paying for table storage. I used to run, have I been paying on the cost of a cup of coffee a day? It's a lot of coffees now. <laughs> Just put it that way. Incidentally, the thing that's costing me the most is uh, for any one given service is log ingestion, log ingestion or app insights, which says to me that I've, I'm probably needing to downsample stuff. Another story. But I, I literally got to the point, I remember where I was, I was in Canberra in January and Charlotte and I were looking at the data and I was like, why are we paying for the world's largest brands to run free searches <laughs> time and time again. And just something about that just didn't quite feel right. So we started looking at a lot of the data in terms of the way domain searches are used and, and basically got, got to the, 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 the opinion fairly quickly that there should be, first of all, some big improvements. And then second of all, there should be a cost to domain searches beyond a certain limit. Now that's, that's the nutshell. I'll go through these five different announcements in terms of how we, uh, what we've actually done to meet those objectives. So making it scale, making there be a financial tier. So first thing is, there's now a dashboard. Now, after I published this blog post yesterday, someone got in touch with me and said, wow, I just realized I'm monitoring 47 domains. Uh, now this was 47 domains that someone had gone through and manually verified every single one of them. But the way it used to work is if you wanted to do a domain search, you go to the domain search link, you'd put in the domain, you would then verify that you control it, and then you get the results of that domain. If one of the domains that you had successfully verified was in a data breach, you get an email with the link. It says go here. It would send you another verification email, and then you'd get the results for all your domains. But if you wanted to go and do like one-off searches, manual verification. If you wanted a list of all the domains you're monitoring, can't do it. If you wanted to unsubscribe from any one domain, you had to wait until you got the email that said you're in a data breach and then you unsubscribed from everything. And it really just didn't reflect the nature of so many people monitoring multiple domains. So now there's a dashboard. And on this dashboard, you can see a list of your domains. So yeah, I've got arihunt.com.au and yeah, obviously troyhunt.com and all this sort of stuff here. And next to that, we're showing the number of uh, addresses that have appeared breached against them. So 
Across my domains, I get to a total of 14. Most of them are on the uh, have I been pwned integration test.com domain. But I get to see them all here, and then I can just click on a button and search immediately. When you click on that search, you won't see it in the URL because we use Cloudflare workers to reroute the request. But when you when you load the domain search page, it's still all served up by the Azure app service. You click on search, it goes into Cloudflare, hits a worker, and then it routes off into an Azure function. And the Azure function returns either an HTML result, a JSON result, or a, an Excel result, depending on which one you want to search for. So. There's now this dashboard which makes all that easy. Now, I realized after the person said last night they've got 47 different domains, I actually need to put a count somewhere to tell you how many domains you've got because there are people for whom I'm imagining this guy going through and just like one, two, three, four, yeah. Anyway, so domain search dashboard, it has now become a bit of a hub. And this is something that will expand as we add these other bits and pieces that I'll talk about in a moment that'll come next month. So... Now that that's there, we don't need to do this announcement too. Now that's there, we don't need to do domain verification again on every search. Uh, I've basically formed the opinion that the upside of being able to just go in and run the domain search quickly outweighs the risk of someone having done the domain search successfully, proven that they control the domain, but then no longer being responsible for it later on. And that does remain a risk because you could be working for a company, uh, do a search on the domain, and then no longer be working for the company but still able to see the domain search results later on. It's a risk that was there already. Now, the on-demand domain search, you had to demonstrate you can control it. But if it was in a breach, then you got an email that linked you through effectively to a search result anyway. So that the actual risk hasn't really changed. Looking at the comments here as I go. Uh, Someone says, why well, is it so hard to get into cybersecurity and why is there such a low threshold to join ransomware? <laughs> what could be changed? I think that is a bigger topic than what I can possibly cover today. Brendan, so if I check my inbox for which email I've got domain monitoring for, I'll be able to pull the dashboard up if I get the link to it, right? Yes. So the, the, the entry point now to the dashboard to domain search, you click on the domain search link, you put in your email address, you will then get an email which will verify you control it. It'll then link you through to the dashboard. If you have previously signed up for notifications with that email address, you will see those domains. If you just did a one-off domain search and you didn't leave an email address, then I don't know that you should be associated to it. So actually, that's, that's something I didn't really point out in the blog post, not, not intentionally, but one of the paradigms that's changed is before that the workflow was enter a domain and then there was a pre-selected checkbox that said send me notifications and you'd enter the email address. You could uncheck that and do a search and not leave your email address. That's inverted now. And, and, and the rationale is that in order to do the dashboard and associate domain searches back to an individual, then you need to be signed up for notifications. So you put your email address in first and then you attach domains to it. Now, of course, if you don't want to know about data breaches impacting a domain, well, I'm not quite sure why you're there in the first place, uh, but you can then remove it later on. The dashboard does allow you to stop monitoring a domain. Um, Marius says, what if you could verify domain and valid email with a DNS text record? Well, you can. That's there. <laughs> That's one of the four ways of verification, if I understand your question correctly. All right, so number two was we only need to do the domain verification once. Now, number three, 
was pretty much what I've touched on before. Domain searches are now entirely serverless. Um, this makes a, a really big difference because with everything running on Azure Functions, as load increases, and I, I did actually push all this code silently just before the Zax data breach on the weekend. I, I held off a little bit on Zax because I wanted to get this code out, push it, see if anything broke. Um, I'm just checking my errors now. But there are no failed requests, zero failed requests on the app service in the last 24 hours, which is great. Everything actually seems to have worked really well. So it was a silent push. Everything running on the app service, um, it's running super efficiently. I, I don't have any problems with that. <laughs> so there's not much more to say. When you do a domain search, it'll run on the Azure function. Now, there is still a point at which a domain search will time out. There are domains that are too large to run. Gmail.com. If you could verify controllergmail.com, it would be too large to run. You're never going to get a result for it. I'm not entirely sure where that threshold is. I just know it's very, very high, and I might actually have to go through and do some tests. In fact, I do know some domains that, that time out. So I might actually go through and, and try and run that and just try and get a sense of where the threshold is. Then at least I can say to people, look, if you've got more than, I don't know, for say 2 million breached email addresses on a domain, first of all, you're a very big player. <laughs> very, very big player. Uh, second of all, at least then we know where that threshold is. Okay, so number three, entirely serverless, which is great. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to not getting all those notifications about infrastructure scaling every time I load a breach. Number four, I've said that there's lots of little optimization tweaks. And as I look at my like dashboard of have I been pwned here, I, I just see all of these places where we can make things better. Uh, I see, for example, the underlying SQL database has got a, an odd spiky pattern. There's something running there. There's a query running there. It looks like every hour, which is spiking. And I've got to figure out what that is. So it's, it's, it's endless tweaks. For the domain searches, it was things like, when you do a domain search for acmecore.com and you get a list of impacted email addresses, I used to say, John at acmecore.com, Mary at acmecore.com. We don't need to do all the at acmecores.com. We can take out acmecore.com for every single row and just say John at and Mary at. And that sounds really, really minor, and, and it is, but the minor stuff, because this thing's used so much, really adds up. So by being able to strip those out, we reduce the response size, we reduce the overhead of processing, we reduce the egress bandwidth, which can get really, really pricey. I linked through to my blog post about how I got pwned by my uh, my my cloud costs. So that uh, that's a nice little tweak there. I know that there's a lot more that I can do to optimize that. And particularly now it's in functions. I mentioned before, functions are charged based on the duration of the execution and the resources used by the execution. So the faster and the more efficient I can make this code, the less money I have to pay so that you guys can run domain searches. Which brings me to the point about the money. So I want to put like a tiered model around the cost of domain searches. And this is very much like what I did with the API uh, searches. In fact, the, originally the API searches for email addresses alone launched in 2019, $3.50 a month. In November, I ended up changing rate limits, adding higher ones, adding different tiers. 
in all honesty, I have not had a single negative comment about that pricing model and about that service. The uh, actually not about that technically. I'll come back to the other negative comment that comes up a lot there. Um, but that model has worked really, really, really well. And we've now had since November, so what's that? Call it seven months of that running uh, and a lot of stuff that we've learned from that. So it'll be something similar to that. And, and the trick now, and I honestly don't know the answer to it yet. I've got a bit of a gut feel. But the trick now is to figure out what, what is a reasonable pricing structure to put on domain searches. I want to make sure that the vast majority of them are within a free tier. And that the easiest way to try and figure out how do we scope and scale f uh, a pricing model around domain searches is the number of breach addresses on the domain. That That is the, it's not only is it a really reliable indicator of the size of the domain and inevitably the size of the organization running it, but it also ties directly to the overhead of running the service. Because obviously if it takes longer to pull the data and there's more data to send, then we pay more for functions and more for egress bandwidth and everything else. So what I want to do is sort of see a point where things like small organizations or personal websites or things like that, which let's say for argument's sake have 10 or less breached email addresses, which is about half of all domains uh, in Have I Been Pwned at the moment, we just, nothing changes. It's just exactly the same as what it always was. And then I need to figure out what are the right segments to have. I think about four is the, the sweet spot. At, at the moment, that's what the API keys are, uh, like four different tiers, where it'll be like between 10 and you know, 100 do or breached email addresses on a domain, it's this much, and then for this much, it's that much, and so on and so forth. And, and the way I'm going to figure that out is <clears throat> I'm literally going to go through the list of domains, the number of breached accounts on them all, and try and segment them up into logical, I guess, groups. Uh, it was only a few months ago I started actually storing the number, just to count, the number of email addresses on a domain in a SQL database. So there's always been a SQL database of domains that are searched, but I never stored the number of breached accounts against them. So I started doing that on every search, uh, and then that's been populating over the last few months, and then I've gone through and pre-populated a bunch of other ones by running searches on domains that just hadn't been searched again. So I've got a really good idea now of that spread. So I'll be able to figure out the segments. Now, what I also put here in this announcement five is I do want to add something else to this. I don't just want to go, hey, this thing that was always there, you now need to pay some money for. I really want to add API searches because organizations are constantly saying, look, we would like to automate this process. We would like to have, for example, an API where we can see if acmecore.com has been in a data breach. Now, I've got to figure out how to do this given API searches or domain searches rather are resource intensive. I don't want to create a situation where someone's sitting there and every 60 seconds, they're just running another search for the domain. And now all I've done is just like massively amplified the problem of before, <laughs> which is the, the resource intensiveness of domain searches. Tangential comment. One thing I also did during this year is it used to be that if you did a search for acmecore.com, the app service, the Azure app service, would go to table storage and it would pull that entire partition from Azure table storage and it would go, here's your acmecore.com. Pulling that out of table storage 
when there's 12 and a half billion records or something there is time consuming and expensive. It only changes after a data breach load. So it's only after a new data breach is loaded that the results will be different. So what I started doing is caching in a blob. <clears throat> now this has been there for months and months and months, so it works great. So you do a search for acmecore.com and the code says, does this search already exist in a blob? There's a little container there. They all sit in there, all like, you know, acmecore.com.json, <laughs> for example. If it sits there in a blob, we just pick the blob up, which is very, very fast, and return that. You do three searches in a row, just picks the blob up each time. After a data breach load, the container is deleted. And it's just like nuke the entire container. So every search result goes and it starts repopulating as people do searches. So what that does is it massively reduces the overhead on table storage where domains are searched multiple times, moves that overhead into blob storage. We've then got a storage cost because we've got to keep the data there and we've still got all the same egress bandwidth and everything cost. But the point is, is that we're unburdening table storage, giving fast results back to everyone else. I still don't want to create a situation where someone is now just hammering that service and we've still got the, the egress bandwidth from storage and then, of course, the egress bandwidth from the, from the functions app as well. So I'm going to need to think about some mechanism of, of throttling that. And it may well just be a Cloudflare rate limit rule where it's like, look, you can have an API, you can query a domain, but you can only do it uh, yeah, once every five minutes for argument's sake. I don't know, I just made that up. <laughs> I haven't really given it much thought. There'll be a way of doing that. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be something really important to think about as we go into this model. But I, I do really like the idea of organizations being able to say, I'm now going to integrate domain searches into uh, whatever mechanism it is that we're using internally. And, and what I really hope that the optimal way is that organizations will just monitor the public feed, uh, the public API of data breaches that are in there when a new one appears just go and do a search then you know wait until on average it's like every four or five days so you don't need to keep doing it every five minutes or whatever every four or five days just go hey is there a new one so i need to try and think of mechanisms to encourage good usage patterns now before i go to the comments here and then start to wind up the problem that we will have the problem that we have constantly had with the API keys. <clears throat> Who works in a big organization with a procurement department? <laughs> and how do you feel about said procurement department? As I said on the blog post here, the, the, the issue is not actually the money. The, <clears throat> excuse me. The issue is the fact that a purchase is being made. $3.50. It's difficult to get a coffee for that. I guess that's US dollars, so okay. That's about what I pay for a latte here. It's nothing. It's certainly nothing for a big organization. But short of someone gobbling that cost up themselves, and I know a lot of people out there are doing that. I used to do it at Pfizer because it was so hard to get things purchased. Small purchases, I just pay myself. Don't get me started. The problem is we constantly get requests that range from... Uh, we have a reseller. Can the reseller purchase for us? Uh, and we actually say no. Strictly terms and conditions, no, you cannot have someone else purchase on your behalf because we want to be able to tie keys back to the organizations that are actually using them. So can we use a reseller? No. Uh, can you create an invoice for us? No. <laughs> oh, no, here's a good one. 
can you give us a quote? And I'll go, yeah, price is on the website. No, 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 we need a formal quote. What do you mean? Can you just like print the website to a PDF or something? And it's this procurement insanity, which I know so many of you are burdened with, that I have been burdened with before as well. Um, everything is automated. It all goes through Stripe. We literally just, we get up, we look at the dashboard and we can see people have purchased keys and things happen and it's wonderful. It's fully automated, turnkey, self-service. We don't do manual things when people purchase keys. We can't. There are literally thousands of people who subscribe to public API keys. We cannot go through and do that process for even a small slice of them. That is a barrier for many organizations. Many organizations also want to do things like ask you to fill out their vendor questionnaire. Who's ever seen a vendor questionnaire? Yeah. <laughs> and that will be everything from, are you SOC 2 compliant? Uh, yeah, list your ISO 28 or whatever it is standards here. Um, please describe the process by which you dispose of corporate devices at, as they get to end of life. I love that one because it's always like, well, I reset it and I give it to the kids. Please detail the physical access controls to the business's premises. <laughs> Got an IoT lock. I don't know, does that count? And there are all of these things that make sense for big B2B sort of relationships, but do not make sense when you're paying $3.50 for an API key. The other one I'll get is things like, yeah, we have uh, various privacy controls, or we might have some legislation in our country of choice which is somewhere very different to where you are. Can you please complete our documentation? No. I had someone the other day log a ticket. So we have a ticketing mechanism for the existing API key. Uh, and I expect that we will continue to use that and expand it to domain. That'll be another added feature. Here to who first. There will be a support mechanism, a formal one. Someone the other day say, we want you to complete these documentations because it's a legal requirement in our particular country. And we say, well, you know, here's, here's the, the FAQ. We, we don't do that because this is a self-service turnkey sort of thing. And this person then responded and said, this is non-negotiable. I'm copying in our lawyer and our privacy officer. And I took a while to think about how to reply to that. <laughs> and I was going to say something like, well, it's non-negotiable that we're not going to do it. Yeah, something obnoxious like that. But I ended up saying, look, I don't think this is a good fit for you. And, and that's the answer. Now, unfortunately, what that means with the domain stuff is there will be organizations that are large enough that they will fall into that commercial tier and also large enough that they have bureaucracy which they won't be able to overcome in order to use this service. But that's really on them. You know, if, if, if Acme Corp, if you're out there, Acme Corp, and you've got domains with, let's say, thousands of email addresses on them, and you want to come and use this service and it costs you a few bucks, but you're unwilling to do that unless manual documentation things are filled, it's just not going to be a good fit for you. And I'm conscious that that we will lose subscribers that are currently using the service. Might take a little bit of the overhead off, actually, so maybe it's not all bad. But I know that that's going to be a problem. And what we're trying to do is, is reduce the friction for organizations to be able to use it. Now, part of that includes further fleshing out privacy stuff in terms and conditions. We are paying lawyers lots of money to build robust T's and C's and privacy things, um, which we already had to do for the public API key. If anyone's had a look at the public API key terms and conditions, that's 
lots of pages and lots of thousands of dollars spent at KPMG to get all of these things written and right. And we have to go through all of that again to do it for the domain search stuff as well. That is the least fun thing. All I want to do is sit here and write code. I don't really want to talk to lawyers about terms and conditions. I don't want to do that any more than when I want to talk to people about the color of my cupboard doors downstairs. Let's see the comments here. Joel says, how are you finding cool, cool and warm startup with your Azure Functions app? Or is your load such that everything runs hot? Everything's always hot. Like if I look at the uh, the functions up at the moment, the where is it it's here? There've been in the last twenty four hours nine point six one million requests. Uh, so that's a combination of the public API key. Of course, all of the um, uh, domain search stuff runs in there now as well. The there's some enterprisey stuff in there. So the likes of Mozilla and One Password that do K anonymity searches for email addresses, all of that runs through there. So no, nothing's ever cold. The the only time anything really changes there is when I do a deployment. So GitHub Actions will uh, will build the code on on check into main. They'll deploy it to a staging environment and then do a slot swap. Um, I never notice interruption on my charts on a slot swap. Uh, I'm I'm sure it's possible, particularly with that volume of requests. Jim says, webhooks could be called at the same time as email notifications. Now, that's a good question, Jim, and I have thought about webhooks, and that is something that happens in that enterprise model that, again, Mozilla Firefox and 1Password, for example, use. There is a webhook model. I'm, I'm definitely sitting on that idea. I like that idea. Uh, I use the, that webhook model a lot in Stripe. So at the moment, every time, uh, for example, a payment is processed as a webhook model, comes back, tells have I been pwned, you know, someone's API key just renewed this month. Please extend their subscription. I think webhooks are great. There's a lot of other stuff to add around that. So, for example, if I look at Stripe at the moment, you know, being able to, A, have a place where you go and configure the webhook. B, you've got to be able to monitor it. So if I look at my webhooks here, uh, I can see, you know, all of the requests today invoice.paid and then here's the request that got sent here's the response that came back here's the duration and all of that stuff is really good but there's a lot of extra plumbing to build webhook callbacks but i like the idea thank you jim <clears throat> uh where are we up to here now skymet says skymet semit apologies if i've messed that up brings up bad memories without even seeing what you're referring to. I know it's procurement. <laughs> Trying to buy things in a company. I had a mate at Pfizer who, this would have been, tw- let's say, it was about 2013. It was around about have I been pwned time. I was really trying to, I looked after application architecture in APAC. Uh, it wasn't just Asia Pacific, it was all of Asia. And I was really trying to move us from traditional hosting models and even traditional sort of uh, shared machines at a, at a host into the cloud, moving us to a PaaS model. And I, I remember we were paying about, I think we we're paying about $20,000 a month for shared hosting for the, the slew of different websites that we we're using across Asia Pacific. Uh, they were mostly like Viagra marketing campaign websites and things like that. Pfizer made Viagra. That's, yeah, anyway. That was my job, <laughs> Biogrip websites. And we managed to get that down from like 20 grand a month to something stupid like $70 a month by just going to an Azure app service where you could have 500 websites on the same app service. <clears throat> but 
we couldn't get the organization to pay the 70 bucks a month without entering into this massive agreement with Microsoft. So my mate at Pfizer used to pay the $70 a month out of his own pocket to save the organization 20 grand a month. Kind of feel like now it's a little bit retribution. Where I'm just turning around to these companies going, well, if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. That's, yeah, that's too bad. You can't use the service. Robert says, create a form for self-generated quotes. Now, it's a very good point. And it, it is one of the things that um, that I've been thinking about. Uh, so Charlotte manages all of the, the Stripe stuff and all the documentation stuff. And effectively, anything she can do, she does, because there's things that I can do that only I can do out of the two of us, you know, namely write code and twiddle cloud dials. But uh, that, that is one of the things that, that we've been looking at. It's a good, good point. I'm going to make a mental note of that and talk to her about it right after this. Skymat says, I'd rather pay 600 bucks just for the sweet, sweet PDF document. And, and this is where we, we often end up, where we, we do have an enterprise offering, as, as I've said before. It's, uh, it's all POA. It runs completely differently. It's anonymity. It's got the webhooks, all the rest of it. But very often what ends up happening is an organization will say, <clears throat> we would like to use your public API key. Go, okay, sweet. Put your credit card in over there. Job done. No, 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 we need all these documents and things. And we say, well, look, the, the, the only way we're going to do that is to put you in a tier that's way, way more expensive. And there's a minimum lock-in period of a year because we now have to go through all of this rigmarole. And often it involves us having to get like legal guidance or things as well. It's, it's just massive, massive, massive overhead. But time and time again, organizations do exactly what you've just said, which is they would much rather pay way more to get some documents done to then sit effectively on top of the same service and to go and just put their credit... I don't know. Ah, it's painful. Joe says, those organizations should be in a position to staff up with capability to do this in-house, in theory at least. In practice, they'll end up in a breach instead. I'm not sure if you mean in-house do the whole um, the whole sort of uh, data breach thing themselves. Uh, I, I do think that's <laughs> with my vested interest. I do think that's a good thing about source. But, um, yeah, boy, they make it hard. Marek, as an aside, I find the reporting system in Australia is more set up towards victim reporting rather than reporting these types of sites' activities, more towards victim reports. I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, Marek. My view with Australia in terms of reporting as it relates to things like data breaches is it seems to be much more in favour of making life easy on the organisation that lost the data than it is supporting the people who are the victims of the data breach. That's my view. Richard said, seems like you should take their money. <laughs> yep, yep, that's, and, and that's often what it ends up at. Uh, but at overhead to us, that the reason it is more money, is, as you would well know, is because it does add a lot of overhead. And the amount of bouncing backwards and forwards we have to do for contracts around, you, you know this probably much better than me as well, Richard. It's just, it's painful. Max says, my previous comment was swallowed by the other. <laughs> okay. Anyway, look, that's that's where we are. So I had actually hoped to get the like the API bit and the commercial bit done before we go to Thailand. So we're going on, I don't know if I mentioned this, we're going on a holiday to Thailand uh, just under two weeks from now. So second half of the kids' school holiday, we're going there. There's going to be epic photos. There's beaches and nice mountains and white sandy beaches said beaches blue water <laughs> it's going to be lovely 
uh, I didn't want to launch this anywhere near that holiday because there's going to be teething problems, there's going to be lots of questions, there's going to be support stuff. So my goal now is to try and write all of the code and make all the decisions and get all the documentation and bits and pieces done and launch it ideally in about a month from now. I think a month from now is the fastest I can do it. I suspect it might be a little bit later in July. But uh, that, that's my job. And I really want people's feedback too. So the feedback I got from people here has been really helpful. Things like allowing people to generate their own quotes. Good, good suggestion. I appreciate that, Robert. Um, any other feedback, please tweet it to me, email it to me, get in touch with me. I, I really want to make sure we, we try and get this as, as right as possible. And I'll keep talking about it probably each week in the lead up. So if you have any other ideas, <laughs> join me next week and, and let me know. All right, it is a rapidly approaching trade o'clock, which means this house is going to fill up with people that need more <laughs> decisions made about covered colours. So I'm going to go and do that. Thank you very much for joining this week. Hope you found that useful, and I'll catch you next week.